You're listening to Podcast on Fire. It's Asian cinema in a podcast. With your hosts, the magnificent trio of Stu, Ken, and Mike. Welcome to Japan on Fire number four. I'm Kenneth Bosa, the host for this, uh, what will surely be two or three shows, but who knows, we might reach four, because the topic is uh, quite extensive and there's a lot of people who want to talk about it, but uh, with me tonight is Stuart Savland. Hello. And Mike Bannon. Good evening, Kenneth. Hello. Good evening, Stuart. Good evening, fans. <laughs> I was yeah. tip my heart. Yeah, that's a very proper way to introduce ourselves. And there are a lot of fans of Kaiju Eiga, or as we will probably refer to it as uh, we'll refer to it as monster movie, giant monster movie. And who doesn't like giant monster movies? Godzilla, obviously. So a wee bit introduction is of course uh, is of course uh, good for a genre, and uh, we won't go into extreme detail. D- this is basic introduction just to get us into discussion. But uh, I'll uh, I'll. Um, throw out a thank you to Wikipedia for uh, supplying uh, <laughs> a much longer longer introduction to the genre I'll just pull out the most uh, basic bits for us so kaiju is a Japanese word that means strange beast but often translated in English as monster and specifically it's used to refer to a genre of tokusatsu entertainment and tokusatsu is a Japanese term that describes any live-action film or television drama that usually features superheroes and makes considerable use of special effects. Uh, the literal translation to tokusatsu is special effects. So there you are. And icons of tokusatsu in the late 1970s were the likes of Spider-Man, as Mike Banner has spoken about, the Japanese TV series Spider-Man. Uh, Kamen Rider Stronger, Kamen Rider V3, uh, quite uh, notable icons of, uh, of this genre. And related terms to all this, and the one we're going to stick with and stay with, is Kaiju Eiga Monster Movie. And it's a film featuring, you know, uh, Kaiju, Kaiju, which is refers roughly to, translates roughly to humanoid monsters. And there's also a, a second term used called Dai Kaiju, which is which is giant monster. Uh, for some reason, they needed to separate those. And uh, <laughs> uh, so, the most famous kaiju, obviously, is Godzilla. Uh, and uh, we, we'll talk a little bit more about him in a moment. But uh, to, to mention a few other examples, obviously, we have Mothra and Anguirus, Rodan, Gamera, and King Ghidra. My favorite kaiju. I assume um, Super Sentai series would be in, in that. Uh Takasatsu, is that what you say? Mm-hmm. Kind of um, category, right? That's the um, robot people fighting each other, mm-hmm. heroes that Power Rangers is based on. Yeah. Basically, they take the Super Sentai TV series, take the action scenes, uh, dub them, and then film the bits when they're not in costume with American actors. It's actually... I saw an example of that recently. I saw this movie called Super Riders Against the Devils, which is actually... a uh, mix of uh, early 1970s feature Cayman Rider film but basically all the scenes outside costumes where actors are seen was refilmed in Taiwan with a Taiwanese cast uh, including Lee Imin who is in a lot of uh, Joseph Kuo <laughs> films 
uh, Mr. Chess Boxing he starred in. And it's basically a uh, composite of the two movies there, which is uh, it's a very rare movie and uh, kind of fun to see that. But I've heard more examples of that uh, in the Thai productions. Uh, and and, and it's, it's not choppy cut and paste kind of thing because they had, they did sets, uh, these very colorful sets. Uh, they replicated those to sort of fit with... Uh, with the original Japanese feature, so it was quite uh, quite fascinating uh, to, to watch that, and uh, uh, it was hard to figure out what the actual movie <laughs> in Taiwan was. You know, what, what's the English title that refers to a Taiwan movie? It took a while for me to figure it out, but uh, uh, the Super Sentai series uh, I, I I never read up on, but I guess that's an uh, iconic one along with uh, Ultraman and things like that. Mm-hmm. But uh, Kaiju. Uh, the the uh, that specific term. The, these monsters are typically modeled after conventional animals, in, uh, insects or mythological creatures. But but you have you have more exotic examples though. You, you <laughs> I read, but I did, did, did see, didn't see any examples of this. But you, there's apparently monsters based on traffic lights, faucets, and tomatoes. <laughs> you got monsters uh. based on cats. Apparently. I mean, w- what we've come to the conclusion, you know, talk- talking with the guests and so forth, that stuff can be made into, you know, uh, tokusatsu entertainment. Stuff. Inanimate objects. Apparently. What What would uh, uh, be able to turn into a giant monster and attack you? What was that, Mike? What, you know, what everyday item yeah. would you least like to see turn giant and attack uh, Sweden, Ken? I, <laughs> I reckon like a George Foreman grill would be pretty uh, badass. <laughs> the fat keeps coming. <laughs> so that would work in America. Reduces it to fat. <laughs> yeah, as, as it kills people, obviously, in the heat. All the, you know, they're uh, rendered down fat would be scolding you as well. And uh. be a river, a river of fat going down the street. That's Tokusatsu Entertainment. I'm copywriting that idea. <laughs> Um, Cayman Rider Super 1 even includes like an army of mo- monsters H- here's an example actually uh, even includes a whole army of monsters based on household objects such as umbrellas and utility ladders <laughs> <laughs> God bless Japanese just add a pair of googly eyes onto anything and there we go Killer Broly but uh, moving away from that, uh, we we should do a podcast on uh, <laughs> household objects such as umbrellas and utility ladders turned turned monsters. Taking notes right now. Yeah. That'll be so, that'll be a short podcast, I think. Yeah. <laughs> a little subcategory to to this uh, particular Japan of I. Um, <laughs> moving on, while the term kaiju is used in the West to describe monsters from Tokusatsu and Jap- um, and Japanese folklore. Th- also fitting that category are like uh, monsters like vampires, werewolves, Frankenstein's monsters. Obviously, uh, Frankenstein conquers the world. It's quite a famous, uh, famous movie from Toho. Uh, very insane movie. Apparently, mixing some very kooky stuff and some very serious stuff. Um, so th- that, after talking to various people, that is high on my list. Uh, Frankenstein conquers the world. And. Um, if you look at kaiju uh, in another in another way, they they are often depicted as cannon fodder serving a greater evil, uh, as will as will uh, 
talk about the destroy all monsters the, the monsters are controlled and uh, some kaiju are elite warriors uh, which serve as the right hand man to the greater villain on, and are destroyed by heroic forces and others have neutral uh, alignment only seeking to destroy buildings and other structures which was basically what Godzilla was his only instinct uh, during a few uh, early movies uh, and later he like fought for humans uh, and became more of a hero uh, Godzilla uh, as the movies became more colorized and wider in scope and also uh, uh, lighter uh, lighter in tone mm. so obviously to you have to talk about Godzilla if you're talking uh, giant monster movies and uh, Therefore, we're going to talk a little about actually the landmark 1954 science fiction film uh, known as Gojira, obviously, in, um, in Japan and uh, retitled in the US Godzilla King of the Monsters, which was, that was the first appearance of the name Godzilla. And mm -hmm. it, it has stuck in several ways. You know, you, you can't ask for a big, like, cultural impact. Well, well probably are big cultural impacts but you know since 1954 it's been mm -hmm. like the, the, there's still a steady stream of uh, Godzilla related products out there I mean uh, computer games fighting games and uh, things like that so uh, it, it never stops but uh, this 1954 uh, Japanese film was, it was directed by Ishiro Honda a very frequent director of this series of films uh, special effects by the uh, genius Eiji Tsuburaya and produced by Toho Company. Mm. And, uh, two years later this uh, heavily edited version uh, was released in the US, uh, Godzilla King of the Monsters and uh, it featured actor Raymond Burr inserted into the film uh, at various points as a new character, Japanese, uh, sorry, American journalist uh, stuck in Tokyo during this uh, monster attack. And um, it's kind of bad, but not that bad. It's not uh, the worst cut and paste product out, uh, product out there. So, if anyone uh, wants to see this cut, I recommend picking up the classic media US DVD. I think uh, the BFI DVD in the UK is actually the same as the same content, including like the different cuts of the film. Hmm. So, uh, for for the UK audience, and uh, early early uh, the Godzilla franchise was very serious uh, I mean the basic story was inspired by an actual incident uh, the, there's a there was a real Japanese fishing ship called the Lucky Dragon that came too close to a nuclear test site in February the same year the movie re was released and uh, uh, the ship wasn't destroyed but several crew members later suffered from radiation sickness and uh, uh, and uh, many died later and this is the first scene in the film which is kind of cruel to an audience uh, you know uh, Possibly looking for fun, and and mm. then and then they remind the audience of uh, something very terrible that just happened uh, months earlier. And uh, the monster story itself of Godzilla, it uh, actually was done as an emergency because uh, the producers had planned a completely different film, but that project f fell apart. So Toho demanded a film, any film, within a short time. So the producer came up uh, came up with you know the idea of a monster film uh, after watching uh, American pr productions and being inspired by those and they were contemplating like uh, creating an octopus monster uh, at one time uh, but they finally settled all this mutated dinosaur and uh, later on in the film speaking again of the serious nature of the film uh, 
the this climactic attack by Godzilla was uh, meant to exemplify a rolling nuclear attack, just like Hiroshima and Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, only much more slowly. And uh, director Honda he had plotted this plotted it this way after having been shocked himself by the you know the real devastation of those cities uh, mere like um, eight or nine years before. And uh, but it, it was a success. It was the eighth mo best attended film in Japan that year, and apparently it remains the mo second most attended Godzilla film in Japan, uh, behind King Kong vs. Godzilla. This is supposed to be a very fun film. Mm. And uh, initially, critics accused the film of exploiting uh, like the widespread devastation that the country had suffered in the Second World War, as well as that Lucky Dragon uh, boat incident. But uh, time was kind to the film, uh, critically, it, it gained more respect in its home country. And uh, a lot of aspects are classic about the movie, the classic score by, by Akira Ifukube. Uh, it's very known, the, the classic Godzilla march, is a very marching type score. And uh, the, the latest Godzilla film that was made, I think it was in 2004, uh, Godzilla Final Wars, I believe was that post-millennium streak of films that they made and they, that was the 23rd Godzilla movie released in like the third cycle of Godzilla productions there's like three eras and uh, many were done with different atmosphere uh, they, they went kind of back and forth between you know serious light when rebooting the franchise again in 1984-5 they tried to make a serious movie again but uh, that Godzilla 84-85 it's not very well regarded uh, it's actually movies later on in that franchise uh, like the 89 movie or the early 90s movies are more regarded and uh, they obviously were affected because uh, especially those serious movies because they played on a lot of fears and interests of people during the time in which they were made I mean again the first movie was designed to warn people about the use of um, use and testing of nuclear weapons and a movie like Godzilla vs. Hedorah was designed to carry a message about the dangers of uh, pollution so, um, moving on through a few different examples uh, outside of Godzilla, we have Gamera, the giant turtle, which uh, was first seen in, in a 1965 movie from Daiei Company, and uh, it's um, it's also based on it has that nuclear theme because it opens with his awakening from the accidental detonation of an atomic bomb. And uh, <laughs> he wastes no time in causing a rampage of destruction, first destroying a Japanese research ship and then making its way to Japan to wreak havoc. And that was released in America as Gamera of Invincible. And also, like, like Godzilla and the second Godzilla movie, Godzilla Raids Again, the, it was heavily re-edited from its Japanese version. Uh, which was uh, quite common and uh, not always a bad thing. Uh, you had Rodan, which... Uh, is seen in uh, Destroy All Monsters and was a 1956 production. Uh, first monster movie to be filmed in color in Japan. And added uh, with the wonderful US title, added some more explanatory things Rodan the Flying Monster. Mm -hmm. and, uh, <laughs> For some reason, when Titan it as the American version, it just makes them all sound like Mexican wrestlers. <laughs> Gamera, the Invincible, and it. So there, are, there are wrestling matches in these movies in a way, so it's not you know it's not too far fetched actually. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the, the, there was some confusion about Rodan in a way because uh, in the original Japanese version the monster is called uh, uh, Radon, 
a truncation of Terranodon, uh, ter I don't know how to pronounce that. And uh, while it's commonly believed that the Japanese Radon, or Raidon, I think it's uh, pronounced as well, became Rodan from the international release due to a translation error, it's also believed that it was deliberately changed to avoid confusion with the chemical element, Radon. Hmm. So, um, but but it's actually preserved in uh, as a minor trivia note. It's that name is preserved in the English dubbed version of Godzilla vs Mechagodzilla 2, which was a 1993 movie. So mm -hmm. there you go. And, and finally, as an example, a famous Mothra <laughs> uh, first appeared in on on, on her own. It's a more of a female monster. A 1961 movie from Toho, directed again by Ishiro Honda and special effects by the legend Eiji Tsuburaya. And it was the first monster movie to distance itself from the genre of horror. Because unlike Godzilla and Godzilla Raids Again and Rodan, uh, they were thematically and visually darker films with allegory and scenes of death. Mo Mothra was vibrant and colorful, like Mothra herself. And at times uh, jovial. And even the scenes of destruction in Mothra are depicted with an air of uh, air of uh, fantasy, and 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 you can see that bleed into Godzilla versus Mothra. Uh, they they don't go dark again just because putting Godzilla and Mothra in the same movie. So it's one of the best, the very best. So basically, I I've had a fair amount of experience now, especially during the last year. I, I bought this like classic media Godzilla collection, so. I, I become a fan again of monster movies uh, like this, and I realized that this is sort of my calling in terms of watching Japanese movies. This is, <laughs> you know, it's totally wonderful, uh, and I enjoy it immensely. But uh, Stuart, your your experience in in a nutshell with, with these kind of movies, or are well, we are, are we introducing you for the first time via this podcast to these kind of movies? I probably better saying it that way, because. I really think I haven't seen any, well I haven't really seen any monster movies, because the I did. The availability did. in the UK may, may not be great. Because Ekin Cheng hasn't done any. <laughs> well he has, in a way. He's done the Ultraman TV series. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, go on, you're trying you to catch up a fan. <laughs> well, well, have you seen it? It's a television series, and I'm not sure if it's actually had a release for English subtitles. Um, but I've never really had the chance to watch any of these movies because, with well, the type of movies they are, you'd expect them to be the sort of films that would get shown late nights on weekends and stuff. But I could swear I've never seen any of these movies shown in the UK other than the blinking Matthew Broderick one. Yeah, yeah that's I, what, I, I had that's to mention. Godzilla, that's I had Godzilla. to mention the donkey's ass. Well, yeah, it's not really. Uh, it's not in the same kind of style or anything, is it? It's just a disaster film with Godzilla in it, yeah. which for some reason switches to a, a PG, low quality ripoff of Aliens halfway through. And Jurassic Park and whatever. Yeah. yeah. What other films they can steal? <laughs> and, and it has the worst, like, okay, this is no news to anyone, but I'm going to quote it anyway. There's a, two characters called Siskel and Ebert, you know, the famous critics in in America. Uh, one is the mayor, and obviously is like a right-hand man, and they do actually thumbs down, thumbs up in the movie. That's a <laughs> joke! Lame! <laughs> so, I, I recommend people, like, go to... Uh, 
thatguywiththeglasses.com and watched the Nostalgia Critics review of uh, Godzilla. And here someone totally ripped it apart like it should be ripped apart. So that's a plug for someone else. Right. But yep, uh, basically this episode has introduced me to the genre. Well, the Japanese monster but, movie genre. Well, that was part of the point of doing Joff, wasn't it? So that, Absolutely. you know, introduce us to some uh, mm-hmm. Japanese cinema and bits we haven't tried before. Yeah, because I think the only other Asian monster movie I've got my hands on was actually The Host. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, that, uh, he wasn't really on the scale when it comes to like these sort of monster movies. Well, it still fits. I mean, it's a um, one done for a new audience and uh, for a Korean audience, and uh, I mean, it's yeah, it's a, it, it, it that's that makes the genre alive again. Mm-hmm. E- e- even though I didn't rate it as high, I mean, I I, I still think it's uh, you know, it's not D War. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, D War kind of failure. I heard, and I, I'm trusting what I what I heard. Well, you never know. I might like it, uh, but. Uh, it's probably better than the Kim Jong Il made uh, monster movie, <laughs> as Brian Kirby will uh, talk to us about uh, later on in the show. He actually ki- kidnapped a director and cast and crew and made his own monster movie. Good uh, fucking lord! Yeah, yeah. that should be That's quite a famous story. That one. Yeah. Um, I was just thinking. Then I've, I've a bit like Stuart. I've only seen um, a few modern films. I've never actually really got into the. Uh, proper old school Japanese keiju, even though it seems like exactly the kind of genre of film I would get into. Mm-hmm. Um, but one one that springs to mind that's actually seen, you know, is in the same ballpark is uh, Cloverfield, mm-hmm. the American film, because mm-hmm. that's a bit like Godzilla was uh, used as like a a metaphor or whatever, or allegory yeah. for a <clears throat> nuclear attack. Cloverfield is a little bit like a, uh, you know, September the 11th yeah. kind, of th- kind of thing going on with the uh, monster attack. And that one kind of puts you, um, if you make a, a great effort, obviously, with the shaky cam thing of trying to put you right in the middle of everything, mm. which is when that works, those are the best bits of the film. Yeah. But it's got it's just got too many characters making really stupid fucking decisions that winds me up. It doesn't have the serious heart like the original Godzilla. Uh, the effect across the board, uh, even though I like parts of Cloverfield, and I'm weak for that shaky cam technique. Uh, not as used in like fight scenes, but used in that kind of way uh, uh, when it's shown basically a fake documentary. I mean, I love the Blair Witch Project because of that, because I I get into that. I, that, that that's where some horror really reaches me. You know? so well, that, I, I that's where Cloverfield works. Yeah. Those, those bits, the actual characters and everything were pretty uninteresting. Yeah. Thankfully, um, thankfully, a 70-minute movie with 10 minutes of credits. You know, so so thankfully mm-hmm. it didn't stretch itself to like uh, you know an, an illogical length. And most of the annoying people in it get squished by a big monster. Mm. <laughs> That's always good. Yeah. Stu's right though. You would have thought um, these kind of monster movies would make good late night telly on some on some uh, channels or even you know kids telly on a Sunday. Mm-hmm. morning or uh, early afternoon or something like that but I mean occasionally um, you get kung fu 
films on, or some channels have little kung fu seasons, mm-hmm. or you get you know some John Woo films, or you get like a you know a theme, and and uh, Asian with Asian films on different channels. But I've never seen any of these kind of films on telly in in Britain, which is a bit surprising. Yeah, it certainly was bigger in America. Uh, you know the 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 afternoon. <laughs> afternoon schedule and uh, late night schedule on certain channels were just filled with these. I mean, that that's where a lot of people like naturally got their exposure because they happened to see them in front of the TV one day, and and then were hooked. I mean, uh, and and the, and the DVD availability in the UK is not that great either. I mean, uh, you you have that uh, BFI, which I think it is. Uh, I might be wrong. Release of the original Godzilla with the added US cut as well, but uh, otherwise you don't you don't you don't have like extensive box sets of you know each era and stuff like that. Uh, mm-hmm. As far as I know, anyway, may- maybe there are like really cheap budget releases mm-hmm. of, of these films uh, in the UK, but uh, you can get Gamera films and quite a few Godzilla films. No, the Godzilla films are pretty easy to find for the most part. Hmm. But I don't think you get much in the way of Mothra or uh, Rodan or anything like that. Right. Go ahead, Stuart. No, I was just saying that I haven't came across any, not even the first one. I was only aware that the first one was actually out by searching online. But Wait, you mean like, Godzilla? Yeah. All right. And like in store, like up here, there's fuck all, really. Hmm. Just drowned in manga. Yeah, it's like... <laughs> 50 DVDs of Full Metal Alchemist and like that's just the first half of season one. Thirty disc edition of Bleach, of course, separate cases. <laughs> right, uh, we can't find anything amongst that lot. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, well, uh, as you know, as we as we said, uh, and also to, to give you a Swedish perspective, they never really, to my knowledge, appeared until in. Yeah, probably like some VHS releases in the 90s of, uh, of a fair few. I think they released like 10 and uh, in, in Japanese and the widescreen uh, when 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 it was supposed to be widescreen. So I saw a fair few then. I saw the original, f- fell in love with King Ghidra, the free-headed, uh, Ghidra the Free-Headed Monster, which is one of, still my favorite. Um, and uh, a lot of the, some of the newer ones as well uh, that appeared like late 80s, uh, early 90s. And um, being like a, uh, w- would that be fair, Mike, to say that you are a uh, Ryuhei Kitamura fan because he directed one Godzilla film? Or you, you, you um, hang on, let me think about that. Ryuhei Kitamura. Uh, I've, I've train versus an Azumi. Yeah, yeah, I know he is. I'm just trying to think of how many films I've watched. I haven't actually got Range of Verses, which is um, the one I've been meaning to watch for ages. But right. yeah, I quite like him. Um, he's got, you know, it's pretty. Um, Good visually mm. and quite inventive in that, that respect. Movies are a little bit longer. I think they go on for a bit too long, his films. Mm. Could do the editing a bit better. I've heard but mixed yeah, yeah, okay. uh, opinions on his particular Godzilla and, and also mixed opinions on, on that uh, reboot in the, millennia, in the new millennium. Uh, but then again, <laughs> the entire series is, and even if you look at it, uh, there's there's a general belief that after Destroy All Monsters, that they, they kept on doing movies up until like 75 before they stopped uh, and then uh, started again in the 80s. And, and it, so it declined after that. There were economic restraints on the on the production as well. And uh, some of our guests will, will speak about it. You can really see that the Godzilla suit 
uh, you know, gets more worn, worn, and even more worn. Uh, as opposed to the early days where they just redid it and re-sculptured it, and, and it looked, you know, uh, different from movie to movie even in, in that regard, but uh, it just became more, you know, uh, it had been uh, put through <laughs> put through quite some stress. And I mean, even in some movies, the suit cat, uh, catches fire on accident. You know, so they they were they were <laughs> they were taking it through some heavy, some heavy duty stuff. But uh, that that is a recommendation uh, since that is on DVD, that BFI DVD of the original Godzilla, which is uh, to me like it's a very strong film, an affecting film, and. Uh, Time has been kind to it uh, pretty much all throughout, and, and and the special effects are still very good. They're, they're not like, you know, in uh, in their infancy, and therefore you can like, oh, that's charming, that's trying, you know. But it's really bad. It's not bad. They're really, really good, and they they affect you. Uh, you mean you you're drawn into this like serious disaster scenario. There's this great scene and. Uh, uh, well publicized still from the film where Godzilla has a train in his mouth which looks kind of clownish when you see the still but it's from one of the most disturbing scenes for my money's worth in the film because it's uh, reality I mean uh, he picks up the train and basically people are crushed to death and uh, it's felt in that regard so we've chosen two movies uh, two distinctly different movies from, from kaiju monster movies and the first one uh, on the topic of Godzilla and all the monsters. Obviously, destroy all monsters is a suitable choice because there's 11 of them in this. Monster orgy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the Japanese title actually translates as, uh, I've heard a few different things, but the Monster Invasion or Monster Attack March. It features 11 monsters, Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah, Rodan, Gorosaurus, Anguirus, Kumonga, Manda, Minilla, Baragon, and Varan. <laughs> All under 90 minutes. That's, that, that's effective. So, uh, the plot, basically. All, all of the Earth's kaiju have been collected and confined in an area known as Monster Island. And uh, a special control center is constructed underneath the island to ensure the monsters stay secure. And it serves as a research facility to study them as well. And uh, the communications with Monster Island is suddenly severed. Mysteriously severed. And all of the monsters start uh, attacking uh, world capitals. So, Captain ya Yamabe and the crew of his spaceship Moonlight SY-3 are ordered to investigate. And they discover that the scientists ha in the research facility have become mind-controlled slaves of a feminine alien race, identifying, them identifying themselves as the Kilax. And they reveal that they are in control of the monsters, and their leader demand that the human race surrender or face total annihilation. This is a sweet plot. <laughs> I like this. So, uh, other than the monsters we talked about, that brief descriptions of the other monsters in the film. And if you're fortunate enough to listen to this podcast via the website, there are a number of pictures included just to basically get you to understand my vague descriptions of the monster. So you can pu pull up the podcast post and, uh, and uh, watch as I read along, basically. Uh, so outside of Godzilla, obviously, uh, we have Mothra featured in the film. Uh, again, generally, re generally regarded as female by English-speaking audiences. So she has uh, the characteristics of characteristics of both a butterfly and a moth. And Ghidorah, 
basically a golden dragon-like space aliens with space alien with two legs, three heads, um, long necks, no arms, large fan-like wings, and two tails. <laughs> or uh, also known as like King Ghidra, uh, spelled differently, it's Ghidra, Ghidra and Ghidorah, and it's uh, one of the most powerful giant monsters, uh, and considered like Godzilla's arch enemy and. Uh, Godzilla often has to ally himself with uh, other kaijus uh, before engaging in a battle with the three-headed monster uh, like Mothra and Rodan um, help, has helped him along and uh, in this movie they, they do as well along with some other monsters. Rodan uh, designed after a type of prehistoric reptile. Uh, Gorosaurus, kind of a typical giant dinosaur, has no special powers like so <laughs> energy weapons, just relying on strength. And uh, he was actually featured in uh, as the opponent of King Kong in King Kong Escapes, uh, 1967. Uh, and a four-legged giant or a dinosaur with, and the second kaiju, um, or rather, that is the first kaiju that appeared uh, in a movie like versus Godzilla. You know, in, in Godzilla Raids again, there was the that was the monster battle, uh, Godzilla versus Anguirus. Uh, Kumonga, giant spider, uh, appeared in Son of Godzilla. And Manda, a serpentine creature similar to like a Chinese dragon with the four small legs and horns, appeared in Atragon in 1963. And there you have Manila, the son of Godzilla. Uh, <laughs> I like the description of this, a smaller pudgy version of his father. <laughs> uh, a much more friendly uh, creature. Uh, he, he's more... Um, friendly towards humans uh, than any of his uh, contemporaries. You have Baragon, featured in the movie Frankenstein vs. Baragon, a four-legged dinosaur with a horn on his head and large ears, very important details. And finally Varon, uh, featured in Varon the Unbelievable, 1958, and he resembles like a giant reptile with skin membranes between his legs and arms, and uh, he glides along much like a flying squirrel, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's fun. It's creative. And uh, briefly s setting up the film uh, to put it in perspective, it's part of that first era of Godzilla films uh, that ran between 54 and 1975, the Showa era. And uh, in total, they made 15 film films uh, during this era. And this was the ninth and the last one to basically get positive fan reaction. And it was actually intended to be the last film as well. But uh, they uh, had a uh, tremendous box office and obviously commercial interests are what they are, so on their old. And uh, it was the last film to be made by all the four Godzilla fathers. Uh, Tomoyoki Tanaka, the producer, the, the one who came up with the idea of uh, making Godzilla. Ishiro Honda, the director again. Uh, Akira Ifukube, uh, composer. And Eiji Tsuburaya, special effects, although he apparently only worked as an advisor on this big, big, colorful film. So uh, I have plenty to say, but I want to hear your opinion. So we'll go to Mike first. Well, this, um, I mean, first off, reminded me of the original Star Trek TV series and um, Thunderbirds. <laughs> yeah, I got the Thunderbirds theme a lot. <laughs> and that is about as close as uh, a compliment as I'm going to get to this film. Uh -huh. um, I thought it was really poor. I think it committed 
for a monster film, you know, a big kind of camp action film, it committed the worst possible sin. Bearing in mind, it's got 11 monsters in it. It was boring. It was really, really boring. Um, I mean, not enough monster action for my liking. There was, there was little bits here and there until the end where it picked up in the last like 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. With a good kind of, you know, it's always fun to see. Well, I say it's always. I'm sure it's always fun to see Godzilla standing on Ghidorah's neck. Mm-hmm. So that's got to be fun. And <laughs> Son of Godzilla was awesome. Love that. Smoke ring. <laughs> Remember the, his technique, Dermian. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, I just, yeah, it's too boring. It focuses too much on, there's too much of the humans. Um, and I don't think there's any, there's any kind of dramatic tension or, you know, an episode of Thunderbirds has got more drama and tension in it than this had. I didn't care if people got squished. I didn't see that there wasn't enough danger, enough kind of, you know, the world's going to end. The 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 baddies, the, um, what they called again? The group of women he... Kilax. Yeah. They were as dull and as ditch water and about as menacing as uh, Elmo. They stood there, they said a few things, they kind of wilted away or they just disappeared. That was about it. I mean, there's just one bit in the film. It's supposed to be a bit... It's got like a, you know, it's got the dramatic music playing and everything. And it's like, oh, this is a big moment where they've got like this metal pod control thing and they're trying to kind of laser through it. And there's got to be a good solid minute, if not longer, of just these guys holding this laser onto this bit of metal. Yep. You don't really see anything happening. It's just a laser on a bit of metal for... A, prob- excuse me? Probably over a minute. And that is deathly dull. It's got... Like I said, it reminded me of Star Trek and Thunderbirds. But it had the content, probably, of a Star Trek episode, but stretched for over twice the running time. If they'd taken all the best bits of this and edited it into, like, 40 minutes, it might have been quite enjoyable. But I just found it really, really boring. The only thing... Like I said, the ending was okay. The only thing I actually quite liked was the music. Which is pretty cool. Some of it reminded me a bit of, you know, 60s James Bond films. Hmm. So as I was watching um, Destroy All Monsters, and this music kept popping on, well, not this music, but the music <laughs> from the film, I was like, whoa, it's Pharaoh Munch. I love that tune. <laughs> so I was getting a little bit of kind of, you know... Getting your groove a li- on? <laughs> yeah, a little, yeah, exactly. Getting a little bit of a uh, groove on and enjoying it. But yeah, the music was very good, I thought. For the, um, I mean, only a few pieces repeated, but generally, pretty good stuff. It actually begs the question, and uh, I'm, I'm going to ask you this as well, Stu, I think, after your remarks about the film. Based on what you've seen during this podcast and heard and know now about the genre, do, do you think you would, could be a fan of this type of film? Is it your type of film, Mike? Um uh, I'm not saying that's the you know the reason why you disliked it. I mean, a, a film is if you think a film is bad, then you think a film is bad, regardless of the genre it belongs to. But w- would you consider yourself to like a fan in the making? Yeah, well, I mean, high concept films, well, high concept camp '60s and '70s films with humongoid uh, monsters uh, battling it out sounds awesome. That sounds like the kind of film I could get into, and uh, I could watch quite a bit of. Um, 
especially if it had a nice English dub. Which, that reminded me of like tons of films, but some of these films do, uh, especially the American done dubs. Uh, the one on the Australian DVD that we watched, it's not the American done dub. Uh, uh, right. So if if you if you watch that, uh, poor you. It's a yeah, bad, bad dub. Destroy Monsters dub was pretty poor. Yeah. I mean, all the ingredients of a Kaiju film seems like the kind of stuff I'd, I'd really enjoy. It just happened to be that this one I found really boring. Mm. I want, I'd want more action, more, um, you know, more drama. Mm-hmm. Bit, well, better pace as well. I thought it was really slow. So, uh, any other notes? Otherwise, we can move on to Stu's remark or film. No, that, that tirade over. Then, <laughs> so what about you, Stuart? Um, yeah, I, I, I basically had the neutral opinion. I quite there was parts where it felt a bit boring. It was when uh, the humans were fighting, and I was like, "This is wasting time when monsters could be fighting." When they were having <laughs> the gunfight on the beach with the the weird like test tube slash pistol things they had. <laughs> and it was edited in the way that reminded me so much of the Austin Powers movie where it was shot of them shooting at one rock, shot the other two shooting at another rock. And I was just waiting to see the wide shot where they're actually on the, the same rock. <laughs> I was really yeah. waiting for that moment, but it didn't happen. But I I also kind of got a James Bond theme from it as well. Especially with like the gunfights. Like, there was a lot of themes just popping up. It was like, yeah. Mm, but so I, taking be... uh, taking influences from that decade is uh, is sure to happen, you know. Mm-hmm. So. But yeah, it was definitely different from what I usually watch. So <laughs> it was welcomed. Oh, I welcomed it with an open mind. Mm. I didn't bother watching any trailers, doing any research on it before watching it, mm. and just says, "What the hell." Let's watch it. Good boy. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> yeah, I imagine myself getting a pat in the heat there. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Yeah, but it's a good stance to take. You I mean go into something without expectation, without knowledge? It's kind of, a, it's kind of you. You don't, you don't do that ten out of ten times with movies because you hear so much about movies all the fucking time. You know, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, with me and the host, I knew that that movie was praised. So yeah, I mean, it's not like it's not. It's like it's like gossip, you know. You don't want to read about it, but you hear about it anyway. Exactly. You know what I mean? So something is gonna go through the filter. Mm-hmm. But 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 then we come back to the question that: Do you see yourself get, getting into this genre based on what you've seen, the kind of techniques used, and the, the kind of mood used, and? Uh, definitely. I'm actually quite interested in looking at the movies where it's Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla. I, I think the fact that they built a life-sized robot version to fight them seems awesome. <laughs> exactly. So I'm interested in looking up those films as well as all the really recent ones just to see how they're done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they never, you know, they, they, they try obviously, it's what I gathered, to, to stay true to the way they were always made. So it's not like it's a pure, it's not a pure CGI Godzilla present in these films just because they had computers. You know, mm-hmm. they, they, they try to stay true to the way of making this film, the, the tradition of your, uh, 
with the added CGI when you know when needed. Maybe add some CGI in in the face, you know, to do facial expressions. I don't know. Uh, haven't seen any of them uh, yet. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to go in order, I guess. Yeah. So. Um. But but it's. Uh, oh, sorry, Stu, if you wanted. No, I was just thinking to myself. Okay. I can't remember what I was thinking about. <laughs> okay, uh, you continue. <laughs> well, it's it's interesting, though, to to discuss a little what what your thoughts are on uh, now that we're in two thousand and nine. How how you view something like the, all the miniature work that is in in these movies? You know, mm -hmm. you, you have to put yourself in the mind that this was done in in the sixties and it was decided to be done this way. You know. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's a, there's obviously a lot of miniature work with uh, small tanks and yes. uh, and uh, monsters. Uh, you know, uh, one of the monsters that uh, uh, wraps itself around a highway and things like that. So, how how do you view that? And do, do you find that entertaining? That that kind of type of filmmaking that is obviously miniature and was never you know it, it was never made to look photorealistic and uh, super super perfect scale. Yeah, mm. Well, I kind of, that was one of the things that had the charm and feel to it because it was the fact that obviously they've worked for this style for a while already because obviously Destroy All Monsters is, I would yeah. say, at least half a dozen films into the Godzilla yeah, genre. Aye. So the, the fact that they've actually came up with techniques to use in these films is brilliant for the fact where it is just a close-up shot of two toy tanks, one or two toy trucks driving up to the camera, but to actually have two men run out from behind one of the toy trucks, do a couple lines of dialogue, then run back behind the toy truck mm -hmm. is brilliant. I, mean, I could just imagine them running about on this big green screen. Yeah, but that, that, that's exactly box. what they did. I mean, uh, uh, as Brian Kirby, I think, pointed out, that they, they, they didn't bother cutting away. They, they, they did it. For all it was worth, you know, and they, they they mixed miniatures and live action footage, and they had had top of the line tech, uh, gear at their at their disposal at that time. So this was not some B movie studio uh, doing this kind of thing, and uh, they they were masters at what they were doing. Uh, but 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 it is kind of you either you embrace it or you don't, because you or either you get into it or you don't, uh, as with anything, you know. Uh, so, so what, <clears throat> what do you think, Mike, about the techniques present, if you will? The, the filmmaking technique, the special effects? Oh, yeah, lo loving all that. that. Well, that was the bit that kind of most reminded me of Thunderbirds and the um, the other kind of uh, puppet TV series by um, Week, who's the dude who created the uh, Thunderbirds. Help me out here. You had to mention it yourself, and therefore... Jerry Anderson, there we go. Yeah, um, yeah it reminded me of the, the other Jerry Anderson TV series, like Thunderbirds. Well, that, that was about disasters and rescue, obviously with international rescue, so uh, it was the same kind of scenario as Godzilla, but Captain Starlet and Stingray and those mm -hmm. kind of shows. I just love that. The um, Watching little miniatures get blown to smithereens, or the little detail of all the tiny little sets. Mm. I, just, I, I really enjoy that. I don't mind if, you know, one of the joys of Thunderbirds, I keep mentioning it, but one of the joys of those kind of shows, for me, was when you had the puppets moving around. And, you know, most people know what those... If you, you watch any of those TV series, Ken. 
Yeah, yeah, I know what we do. Yeah. yeah. yeah the way they, you know, the puppets bobble around and then they're going to do something. So, like, you know, the puppet's going out to write a letter. Then it cuts to a close-up of, like, real human hands <laughs> really r- writing the letter. And it looks amazing. Um, and I really like that. And, it, you know, it doesn't bring me out of the film or anything like that. Hmm. It just adds to the charm of it. Yeah. So, yeah, I enjoyed the effects work. Mm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting to actually ask that question because you, you, you can get to a point where you're, like, 40, 50 years away from it and it's hard to adjust to it. But, but it's, uh, it speaks to the strength of them, the, the way, you know, the technique they chose, that it still plays like it does, because you, you, you do adjust, and uh, and again, you don't look at it like, you know, that's sweet and innocent what they're doing, but they're really bad at it. You know, you don't, you, you don't look at it that way. So, um, my opinion is, I, I, I love it. The, that's the short of it, but... I think what what hardcore fans probably would and could complain about at that time was that it, if they desperately wanted the series, Godzilla series, to be serious, then they this wasn't a film for them. Godzilla vs. Mothra wasn't a film for them. Ghidra the Three-Headed Monster wasn't a film for them. So, you, you know, you, you have a worm board on you and you weren't with the development that they took, uh, basically, I guess, based on the decade that it was. I mean, and uh, the further they got away from like uh, World War Two, they, they needed to be a bit cheery again. And uh, the colorful decade that it was, <laughs> maybe it was, I don't know, kind of hard to be super, super, super serious and uh, you know, uh, still swim in all the World War Two allegories and what have you. But uh, I, I, I loved it, and I, I thought it moved very fast. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I was so on board with, with even when it, it's in it's dealing with the human story and uh, I just love that it was that that the filmmakers you know they expanded the premises you know they got bigger and bigger and bigger for every movie I mean they're in space here (laughs) (laughs) and they have the monster island which I love it's this uh, you know what Jurassic Park wished it could be (laughs) <laughs> and I love the fact that it has the it has the various defense systems for the various monsters, but that they probably, you know, it, it was a case of trial trial and error when creating the, these defense systems because Rodan probably flied away at one point, mm-hmm. you know, it flew, it flew away at one point. But now they have this uh, like force field uh, for uh, for that particular monster. And uh, I also was in total tune with the you know with, with the. Alien race in human form, dressed in silver. You know, this 50s, 60s, very common sci-fi design thinking. You know, if you if you ever heard uh, Jerry Seinfeld's uh, comedy routines, he <laughs> he speaks about that fact that we probably should go back to that era and but apply it in the modern era. That everyone's going to dress exactly the same now from now on because mm-hmm. we're going to visit different planets. We're going to have to look like a team. <laughs> so. <laughs> dressed in silver and I, I, I respond to that design I respond to the mood uh, in the film uh, this this uh, kooky light mood and uh, also like the, the acting I thought was suitably big in tone even though the guy who played the main captain commander uh, Akira Kubo he delivers like the straight performance of the film uh, he has to I guess uh, s- someone has to but, but yeah I, I I like Ishiro Honda's uh, fast pace and uh, this element of body snatches and uh, 
and uh, it also is like th this very polished Ed Wood movie to me. Mm. You know, it, it's a it's a it's a movie you can kind of laugh at, but also with, and it's bigger and more competent than anything Ed Wood ever did. But uh, uh, and it's the same with me with miniature work. It's, it's dead on charming, despite you know the print now being crystal clear and remastered. And it still impresses to me the detail they put into the miniature work, and uh, especially when they combine it with live action in the same shot, which happens every now and again, and. Uh, I especially like these um, scenes that you see in the various surveillance uh, monitors. You know, when they watch all the different monster mayhem across the world. When viewed from afar, uh, I thought that was a technical, you know, uh, quite a technical accomplishment in that way. And uh, if you read on Ishiro Honda's uh, various quotes about uh, his view on Godzilla, he wanted to go back to something more filled with substance and with subtext but he, he kind of played the studio game and uh, he, he was a team player he otherwise he would have wanted desperately out of this series but he made he made so many he made uh, some of the best uh, of them but if you, if you remember the film there isn't like a aftermath shot of Tokyo in ruins in Destroyer Monsters <laughs> that is like a reprisal shot from the original Godzilla this eerie like after the storm, after the bomb. I, I, I think the prime impressive aspect to me is, is the ending and the way they put so many monsters, stuntmen in suits and various mm -hmm. technicians off-screen uh, you know, powering these uh, these monsters, especially Ghidorah. I mean, that that, that three-headed monster, you know, th those necks are... two of them, are, I think, are operated by wires and the and the one in the middle or uh, something like that is uh, where s some part of the stuntman is. <laughs> I, I haven't. Uh, I, I don't remember exactly how it was uh, designed, but I, I think that's. Uh, you don't do that if you are, are like a so-so filmmaker. You don't gather that many people in this sexy Toho scope, mm -hmm. uh, that many monsters, and get it done that way and in that entertaining way. I thought that you know bash. That uh, wrestle match, that ba bash mm -hmm. up, if you will, during the end is a classic Godzilla, uh, for my money's worth. Uh, the only thing I didn't like, and it's a kind of a personal thing, is that Mofra, because I like Mofra, and Mofra is kind, but she's controlled that she appears evil. <laughs> you know, in one scene, she's she uh, crawls in front of a train. I think she's in Beijing. And it's like, no, don't control Mothra to do those bad things. She's good. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I, I like I that response because if you know Mothra from Godzilla vs. Mothra only, you, you, you kind of know that uh, it's, uh, it's not a monster that uh, goes on a rampage. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, one of the things I thought would have been great is when it, it does come towards the final fight, and there's like, they're all on island, they're all there, and then. King Ghidorah comes down, and what would have made like what would have been perfect for me is if once they're all there, they all look to each other, then you just heard Mortal Kombat, <laughs> and the music comes on, then it just cuts to the, then it just cuts to their fight. <laughs> That's all it needed. It's a YouTube video waiting to happen. You have YouTube videos, sir. 
So yeah, uh, a little note on, again on the English language version. I, it's, um, I would love to see this with the uh, Titra sound services redubbing that was done in America. Again, on the Australian DVD, that's the Toho International dub prepared in like Hong Kong, I think, uh, for the uncut version that they then uh, sold to other home video markets and if they wanted to use that they did but in America they had this uh, unit called Titra Sound and they put some really really sweet effort into the dubbing uh, lip syncing first of all this was a really badly synced dub and also like p suitable performances in the uh, in the uh, uh, in the dub and uh, I would love to see it a uh, shame that Classic Media uh, uh, did not release, or has not yet released, Destroy All Monsters in uh, in, uh, in America, uh, in another uh, Godzilla collection, because I would love to see the re-edit. And the re-edits, often or not, they, they weren't, uh, you know, uh, uh, hack jobs, and uh, literally, you know, they, they were carefully re-edited, and... Uh, Having said that, it, it, these movies, you, you would think that English is the only way to go because they are campy. But uh, that actually it's not true. It's quite a good... They make good comparison pieces if you, want, if you have a Japanese version and a, an English dub version, especially a US English dub. So uh, that I would recommend anyone who has like the various uh, classic media DVDs, do check out uh, when there are these alternative English uh, versions on the discs because they, they are they are truly inspiring and uh, you only wish that Hong Kong like Kung Fu movies would get more suitable dubs like that you know because they weren't always uh, always in tune and suitable <laughs> but I guess uh, any and any person dubbing Dean Check would still sound like Dean Check you know <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't get away from that because that's the only way you dub Dean Check for 90 minutes. That, that was like, uh... Ah, forget it. It's going to do an obscure reference at no point. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's uh, that's it. Do we do want to add anything about this particular movie, gentlemen? Not really. If you're given the opportunity, rent it. Oh. <laughs> and I say, buy it. <laughs> Mike says, I'd borrow it off a friend. It's one, <laughs> one, one. <laughs> it's like mixed rating systems. So let's bring in our first special guest for this Japan on Fire. His name is Brian Kirby and he's the head honcho of Shelf Life Clothing. And in their own words, uh, Shelf Life Clothing's own line of t-shirts references past styles that are still culturally relevant and viable today and features clean, classic designs with a timeless retro look and feel that creates a must-have compulsion for trendsetters, statement makers and well-dressed cineasts. And to boot, Brian is a big-time kaiju fan. So let's hear his view on Destroy All Monsters. It, it leads me into actually Destroy All Monsters, which we've chosen for one of the movies for this, uh, Japan on Fire, uh, which is a movie that uh, certainly is not connected to a 
uh, a modern reality. It's a sci-fi film set in 19xx. 99. Oh, oh, it is 99. Okay. It's 1999. Yeah. And uh, uh, the future. It is very colorful, and uh, it's uh, it's the Godzilla franchise in in its goofy, outrageous, colorful face, and uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing. So. Uh, Tell me your thoughts on Destroyal Monsters, which w- so I read that it was supposed to be the last movie, therefore they gathered all the monsters or uh, the big ones, the great ones in one movie. Well, they had an anniversary. I think it was the 25th anniversary of of Toho. Mm-hmm. They always seem to be wanting to do something big for their anniversary at Toho. Uh, King Kong versus Godzilla was an anniversary movie also. Mm-hmm. But uh, they, they said, what do we do for the anniversary? Let's have a big send-off of Godzilla where we combine everything, um, not just the monster movies, but the, the sci-fi movies, mm-hmm. uh, the, the alien, you know, the Mysterians, which is a great movie, uh, you know, uh, kind of a Mars needs women type of plot for that movie. Right. Um, and let's, let's just throw it all in, in one movie and see what happens uh, kind of plan and it just i it, i know that it, when i was a kid if you saw that that was on tv you'd scan on sunday you got the uh, tv guide mm-hmm. and you'd give a quick scan to see what was coming up and if that was on then you pick up the phone and call your friends because you're like oh my god that destroy all monsters is on it was just uh you know a very very uh loved movie uh when i was a kid by a lot of people and certainly a light spirit has always been in that movie even in the original language uh version of it it's uh, it's it's light it's campier it's... it's got it's got astronaut heroes it's got you know trips to the moon it's got spaceships it has uh the the slimy evil aliens that uh that turn into like uh amoeba-like rock formations <laughs> it has uh you know all the monsters uh it has it establishes the future monster island you know we're, in the future we are able to control the monsters <laughs> and uh, keep them contained and it, the, and the, it's fun that whole opening scene where they show how they contain all the monsters mm-hmm. uh, where you know they have the uh the gas that is released for Godzilla when he's venturing out to the sea and he, you know, it doesn't particularly hurt him. He just is like, eh, and he turns around. He doesn't want to. Be <laughs> <part of it. laughs> yeah. Or, uh, or Rodan, they have some sort of force field that keeps Rodan and then Rodan dives in and, you know, snatches up a whale or something to snack on. <laughs> you know, they just, they just went all out with, uh, establishing this whole future for the franchise that I wish I mean if if they were going to remake a movie remake that one because that has so many fun uh ridiculous giant blockbuster movie ideas in it uh just great it's got everything and, and, and it's, it moves fast too I mean it's not super mon- pace yeah I mean okay they, they obviously because there are so many monsters in the 11 they, they have to feature them quite frequently in the film but uh, uh, I wasn't at all bored with the whole monsters versus the alien subplot because it's so damn fun to watch that colorful design 
Uh, and uh, and the people are good in it. The human story is fun too. The actors are great. The fact that they uh, brainwash the people yeah. and they have the uh, implants in the girl's earrings, so yeah. she's luring the monsters around to different cities. Oh, it's just great. Do, do, do you know if uh, the the edit that made it to the U.S. was that considerably shortened, or is it? Um, I'm not sure the time difference. Uh, I think it's I think it's it's just about the same. Because it's not um, a long film. It's below 90 minutes, I believe. Uh, yeah, I know that. I know that if I watch the two versions, I don't. It doesn't offend me to watch the uh, the American edit as it does with a lot of these movies, where you're like, oh, where's that scene? Or oh, why didn't they? What what happened? Um, that I think it moves along really well. Yeah. How much of an orgasm do you get when you have so many monsters on screen fighting Ghidra and knowing what you know about the special effects people behind it and the, you know, it, it's, it's all expertise in one frame and it goes on for, I don't know, five, ten minutes, that scene. I mean, it's, what do it's you think? Great. Well, seeing it, I've seen it in a movie theater and it is, it is so fun to see it with a crowd of people when it finally gets where they all they have the uh, radio announcer uh kind of as the uh almost like the ring announcer yeah. <laughs> uh, introduce all the monsters as they come in to the... yeah yeah exactly it's like and gorosaurus and it's just uh it's just great uh the only thing the american cut does is identify gorosaurus as baragon which oh, really? i rub people the wrong way but it's like oh come on <laughs> they, they, they had, got they had they to keep track of, so. <laughs> yeah. you know george takei was was busy that day he couldn't dub it right you know <laughs> but i mean the, sorry. The, oh sorry uh it's just the and the one thing that I've, uh, people go crazy for was then when that one the gorosaurus who was introduced in the uh king kong escapes movie uh the, making his second appearance in a Toho movie, comes in and gets the uh, star turn where he does the kangaroo kick of Ghidra. The the place goes crazy. Everyone was everyone was really having fun with it. I, li- I like the Godzilla's son's uh, smoke ring. Yeah, even he. Yeah, even he gets in. And you know, the, the Mothra, uh, Mothra in concept is a crazy idea. Yeah. And the real th- thing that they really did was. They created that web, which is kind of like, almost like Peter Parker going home and creating his web. It's amazing that they invented this uh, Mothra web. It's a practical item mm-hmm. that they invented themselves, that they had, uh, it was, the, the big problem with it was that it was petroleum-based and gas had a lot of gasoline in the formula. Mm-hmm. Um, so that when they did fire effects, it was a real, you know, it, you could have burned alive if you were anywhere near it. <laughs> but it's a beautiful looking effect on screen. Uh, when he sprang this and you're watching like kind of in real time him cocoon uh, the enemies. Yeah. It's, it's like I think people take for granted like that is a really cool looking effect. Mm. Practical too. I mean, you was know, uh, put to great use in uh, in uh, Godzilla vs. Uh, Mothra, I guess. When oh, yeah, that's the best. Uh, 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 one of my favorite images uh, from the film is seeing Mothra controlled so that she appears evil. 
you know, because yes. uh, because of the uh, I haven't seen all Mothra movies, but never uh, did she appear in an evil light. So I mean, it, it's kind of sad. No, don't control Mothra. Don't make her. Mothra Mothra attacks Beijing and destroy all monsters. Right, I exactly. believe. And 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 she uh, got in New York gets to blow up the United Nations, which is very entertaining too. <laughs> but but yeah, do, do um, and 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 do you think it was a mistake to to continue the the 60s, 70s series of movies after this? Because I've heard that fans are not as pleased with the subsequent movies um, that went on to 1975. Well, Honda Honda only did one more after that. I I think yeah, just one. He did the uh, Terror of Mechagodzilla. Which is, uh, I mean, the the '70s wasn't kind to a lot of things, <laughs> but I don't think it was very kind to the Godzilla movies, where it changed from this kind of, you know, you kind of needed uh, astronauts as the heroes and science and and having these kind of long-haired guys that drive around in convertibles for ten minutes because they have no budget and they have to kill time yeah. for, uh, you know. It, I think that's the real people complain about the the monster action but I think the real drawback is the just the empty long spaces between things um and of course the dubbing of the little kids uh voices uh uh didn't help right uh for for the movies you know you know jet jaguar you know <laughs> it, really didn't help uh although you know when i was a kid when uh godzilla versus megalon premiered on television it was a huge deal like super publicized you know premiere uh i remember it vividly because i had to watch it on a small black and white television that night uh uh and uh you know they have their place i guess you know People can, in hindsight, can look back and say, wow, these really got terrible. Mm. Um, but there were kids who wanted to see them, you know? Uh, and they, uh, that's fine. The other movies still exist. Exactly. Uh, an argument that applies when you're talking about remakes as well. If, uh, yeah. if they ever were to try and remake the, uh, the 1954 Godzilla and failing miserably, you still have still have that and uh, it's not rotting away in an arc uh, in a vault anywhere it's it's there yeah no the dvd of that i have to congratulate classic media's uh, restoration of that i haven't seen the blu-ray yet but uh just great just great to have i only had a, a vhs of that uh previously the original japanese right. one so it's wonderful to have we continue the parade of views uh, on this particular movie and next up is ronald l strong a filmmaker, film historian, and an encyclopedia of knowledge on everything, including this particular genre. We, or I, uh, after yes. some uh, recommendations and help, chose to speak of uh, two movies for, the, for this podcast. And we chose uh, Destroy All Monsters and Die Imagine. Mm -hmm. And starting with Destroy All Monsters, you, you spoke a little about it uh, before. But uh, in, in general, uh, what's your thought on, on this uh, special project, if you will? Well, uh, Destroy All Monsters is just like, I mean, to me, that was the, that was the apex of, of Toho's golden period. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I mean, when that was released here in the States, I mean, the American poster for that film, I mean, there was never a greater 
exploitation poster ever designed. Right. I mean, that that film, I mean, without really giving any detail as to the specific creatures, I mean, they didn't look like their identity or whatnot. Just a fabulous poster, and I've still got my copy of it, <laughs> which really? I which I begged from the theater owner. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I still have an original on that. The original and, uh, Japanese ones uh, definitely no. gives away what oh, you yeah. can expect from the film. <laughs> Absolutely. But it's like the American one was just like, I mean, the American one gave away what was going on too. I mean, it was monsters against monsters. But it's like, there was just something about that that was just pure artistry, pure exploitation. It's, I, I mean, I just love the the artwork on it. And it's just like, oh my gosh. And it's like, if you if you get a chance to see the American poster, if you look carefully, you'll actually see one of the gargantuas in that background. Wow. It's like, even though he's nowhere in the film, <laughs> but there he is. And it's just like, just a great poster. Great poster. And the film itself was just an absolute joy. And it's like, to me, it's, it's heartbreaking in that... Uh, Everybody, you know, disdains the the dubbing of you know the Japanese films, mm -hmm. and of course some of the some of the dubbing on those were incredibly bad. No two ways about it. Mm -hmm. But my favorite my favorite examples is you know again Ghidra, the three headed monster, and Destroy All Monsters, because the films were slightly edited and redubbed, and especially the dubbing on uh, Destroy All Monsters is so spot on accurate. The voice actors that were brought in to do that film. Mm -hmm. to do that work, captured those characters. Those voices fit those characters. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's like every time I see the general, you know, in the uh, the Japanese version of uh, Destroy All Monsters and in the international version that Toho has available out, that voice that is used for that character does not fit him. Even his real voice doesn't fit him as well as the American dub voice that American International put out. I saw that uh, Toho dub. It's on the Australian DVD I have. Yes. Uh, and it's. Uh, I would love to hear that movie uh, with the American redub because di this was painful to listen to it. Badly yeah, synced just... and uh, just a, a quick, quick job. And usually I don't notice that. I'm a fairly forgiving mm -hmm. viewer. And, uh, but, but I, as camp as that movie is, I, I desperately wanted to turn on the subtitles yeah. and listen to it in Japanese again. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Uh, the nice, the great thing that uh, American International did through the uh, old uh, sound company called Titra Films, or mm -hmm. Titra Sound, uh, they actually brought, I mean, Hal Lindsey was, uh, you know, of, of uh, uh, I can't even think of the sitcom he was on now, but it's like, he was one of the voice actors that did this, and there were so many other actors that did this, you know, mm -hmm. especially, you know, some Asian American actors as well. But these guys came in and they acted. They didn't just read the lines, they acted, they mm. performed. Uh, my favorite thing is like when uh, there's a scene, you know, with the uh, the British uh, gentleman at the control room and all that. Indeed. The, act, the actor that did his voiceover sounded so authoritarian and so distinctly British that it's like you, you listen to the international dub and Toho's version and he sounds like Nothing. <laughs> I mean, this just, it is so unlike what that character looks like. Uh -huh. And, you know, like I say, that's the dubbed version is, again, it's shorter than the original Japanese. There's some things that are missing and all that, but the re editing works so much better. The neat thing about the American version, American International version, is that there is only an opening title card. There are no credits until the end of the film. Oh, really? 
And so it's basically, it just starts in, you've got this wonderful narration at the beginning of the film with that uh, that wonderful, I can't even think of the, uh, it was actually, yeah, it was Hal Lindsey who was doing that wonderful narration at the beginning of the film. The year is 1999. <laughs> it's just like, it's so honest and so authoritarian Mm -hmm. and just so beautifully done you know and it's just like uh it's just like i mean listening to toho's uh australian dub on it it's like or an international dub it's like oh my god what are these guys thinking yeah because i mean i mean it's 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 a, a, a an exact uh representation of the actual translation of the japanese version mm-hmm. uh what titra did is that they went in and rewrote all the dialogue not only to get lip sync and all this but to give depth to the story and it works so much better uh much when, like what um, they did when did they start to uh, start to get involved in the uh, redubbing process and the rewriting process um, uh, titra titra has been there since uh since if a memory serves me correctly since uh since since mothra I right, think they're right, right. yeah yeah since Mothra. Uh, the only one they I don't think they worked on King Kong versus Godzilla, but for all of the American international films, I mean everything that they released and you know some of the stuff that Saperstein uh, co-produced from Monster Zero, uh, King Ghidra, uh, even uh, Son of Godzilla and Godzilla versus the Sea Monster. Yeah, Titra Films was there. Yeah, you know, so they you know, they always had a hand in it, and it's like, and in uh, in the American release of Ghidra, the three-headed monster, uh, they actually also helped in the re-editing of that film for the American version, mm-hmm. and so and so their dubbing their dubbing script and their rewrite, you know, their restructuring of that actually made the American version better than the Japanese. Yeah, it's a place well, and I never <laughs> noticed any of the differences. To be honest, it's not uh, that much missing from it, uh, but. It's uh, it's it's something I I would watch both cuts uh, yes, whenever exactly. I d- decide to pick up that DVD because both have extreme merit. Uh, yes, and uh, yes. You, you just immersed in it. Uh, Godzilla vs. Mothra is just the same. It's uh, yes. well done. It's good dialogue. It's yeah. not camp- It's campy when it's supposed to uh, mm-hmm. be that. So they they follow the moods rather than adding. A, yes. a cartoony voice when it's supposed to be a, a serious yeah. authoritarian voice. Exactly, exactly. And the nice, you know, and again, Titra, again, uh, Godzilla versus Mothra. Uh, Titra's original dubbing on that is just so remarkably well done. I mean, the banter between the, the, the in the press room, between the, the boss and the uh, subservient who's always trying to eat the eggs. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's, it's like, I mean, that, that banter is just so charming and so sweet. I mean, it's just like, oh, it's just so much fun. And I love the voices that they had for the uh, uh, for the twins. Yeah. You know, for the little twins. I mean, those voices were remarkable. I can't listen to the Japanese versions of that of those voices. They don't <laughs> match. It's like, and it's and that's the neat thing about Titra, is that those same gals did the voices for virtually all of their appearances, except for the uh, the gals that uh, uh, they hired for that one time in uh, Godzilla versus Ibira or Godzilla versus the Sea Monster. Right. Okay. In terms of, uh, I read that Destroy All Monsters was planned to be the last in that series, but they kept on going because of the favorable box office. But in your yes. opinion, should they have stopped right there, they took should, a breather? Absolutely, absolutely. They should have ended the series with that. Uh, no two ways about it. I mean, that that was their, that was EJ Saburia's swan song. I mean, yeah. no two ways about it. I mean, that's where, you know, he basically, he came back to the set because he didn't, you know, he 
he had nothing really to do with Son of Godzilla or Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster. You know, he was pretty much on set all the time with King Kong Escapes and, you know, Frankenstein Conquers the World and, and Latitude Zero. Those were pretty much his babies. And he was overseeing his own production company, you know, mm -hmm. with, uh, you know, the TV series Ultra Q and Ultraman. And so, you know, he was, you know, he was stretched about as thin as you could hope to get. Yeah. And so as when Destroy All Monsters came out, yeah, he had an active hand in that. Of course, you know, uh, Sadamaso Arakawa was, you know, the, you know, the man that everybody answered to. But mm -hmm. Saburio was there making certain that it was up to his standards. And it was just like it was probably, you know, as far as, you know, Arakawa's work, it's the best that he's ever done. And, you know, nothing he'd done since <laughs> ever came to that level. You know, and you could, I mean, you could see Saburia's handiwork all through that. I mean, just, you know, the, the setup of the shots, uh, his placement, you know, the, the construction of the miniatures, and the way that, you know, the way that I, I always admired uh, Saburia's stuff is that he loved master shots. Mm -hmm. And you know, you just get those huge shots of the entire miniature, you know, with and with the creature dead center in the frame, and just like and smashing a building and all that, and then you cut into a you know a mid shot or a close up or whatever else. But the master shots of Suburia were always that; they were always masters. You know, you always felt the the weight, the depth, and the scale of the beast. Have you ever seen uh, as packed of a battle and a shot as in during? Uh, like the ending of Destroyal Monsters with like the seven or eight of them all together. Has anything like that ever been done no. and attempted? Uh, not not with a monster film. Not right. with a monster film. I mean, yeah. I think the closest we probably come to that has probably been uh, oh gosh uh, off the top of my head <laughs> mm -hmm. I'd probably say uh, the, the battle scene in uh, 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 Zhang Yumo's film uh, Hero yeah. at the uh, calligraphy school. <laughs> and, and, and that tells you the level Destroyal Monsters is working, uh, working yeah. at. I mean, uh, just fitting everything in the frame, I mean, maybe not a problem, but choreographing everything and everything, and, all uh, the wire work, all the you know, and all the guys in the in the, you know the suit actors, yeah. all of the miniatures, all the little pyrotechnics that are going on, and just and just to me, it's like the cutting and the the timing on that. That's probably one of the greatest fight scenes ever put together. I mean, yeah. it's like I mean when Angulus comes in and grabs Ghidra by the by the throat, yeah. it's just like oh my god, Angulus. And, you know, and it's like, and of course, that, that was probably the first Kaiju film that I recall where we actually saw the monsters bleed, you know. Yeah, exactly. And it's just like, oh, my gosh. I was like, <laughs> you know, when I first saw that in the theater, saw, it was like, this was a huge thing for me. It's like uh, Walt Disney's film, The Love Bug, had just been released mm -hmm. same weekend. And, you know, it's like, it's like crying with my, you know, with my sister and my parents. It's like, no, we have to go see this. I don't want to see the love bug. Let's go see this. Let's go see this. And it's like, we went to see the love bug. And it was like, you know, enjoyed the love bug. All that was cute. Next <laughs> night, I talked my friend's family into going to see Destroy All Monsters. And, and we, you know, I and my friends, we watched it. We sat outside the car at the drive-in watching this thing. And we begged his parents to stay to watch it again. <laughs> and yet, so we you know we sat through the the second feature, bored out of our mind, and then stayed for Destroy All Monsters a second time, and you know left that theater about one o'clock in the morning, and we did not sleep that night. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we just we just sat up, you know, out in the backyard, you know, with our little sleeping bags that summer, and just like basically just talked about that movie all oh. night long. 
it was just it was it was a complete and total joy i mean to my mind at you know especially at that point in time you know you know, we we're you know watching the news. We had the Vietnam War. We mm-hmm. had all the civil unrest going here in the states and everything else. And here was this moment of pure, unadulterated escapism. Wow. And it just took all of that hardship, all of that hurt, all of that anxiety that we were feeling, and just took it away, and just gave us just pure joy. You know, yeah. I can't think of any way, any other way to put it. And so, I really, really love Destroy All Monsters. To me, it's like. Uh, no other film could have come at any other time that could have, you know, basically taken away our fears and our hopes and our anxieties for an hour and a half. Wow. You know, and it's just like, you know, so I, I, I rate that film very, very highly just for that. You know, it's like it was kismet that that they did it like that. And it's like, but it, you know, it, it was a film of its time and it couldn't have come at a better moment. Uh, was that retitled in America or did they keep it that was, title? No, they kept the title. It was called Destroy All Monsters. Uh, I think the original uh, Japanese title was that. No, it wasn't All Monsters Attack, but it was, it was something akin to that. The, it, th- uh, it literally translates, according to a few different sources, as but but, but that's a literal translation for Monster Invasion, Monster Attack uh, March, which I really dug. Did. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, wow, and uh, <laughs> uh, I, I mean it's a, it's a, it's a. Fast paced and colorful and uh, perfect yeah. in all of God. And I, I watched it for the first time on, on DVD and I, I, I so enjoyed it on the small screen. And uh, uh, I haven't seen the subsequent movies in the series, but maybe I will get that feeling as well that, uh, yeah, they, mm-hmm. they should have stopped here. But the commercial interests are all <laughs> they are sometimes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, uh, that's like. Well, I actually have, you know, just between you and me, I actually have a tape. It is pan and scan, but it's a tape of the Amer- of the original American International Pictures. Right. I and it has that original dub. And I once I get some gear together and I'm able to transfer that, I will be happy to make you a, a DVD copy of that. That would be sweet because I would love to hear <laughs> it with uh, less uh, retardation on the soundtrack. That's, that's basically, I, you, you you will fall in love with it the way the mm. rest of us did. It's like it's a it's a remarkable film next up because there's more is august ragoni author of ag tsubaraya master of monsters and august has commented on japanese film and popular culture on television radio in print online and at film festivals for more than 25 years and is one of many enthusiastic voices of kaiju so here's his view on the film of this podcast talking about many monsters uh, at once so what's your thoughts on uh, the movie we're focusing on on the first podcast uh, destroy all monsters uh, Mm -hmm. the let's say big movie just to make it simple so what's your thought on this this that almost was the last uh, Godzilla movies if I if my research was uh, correct yes it almost was the last Godzilla film and that is because Japanese audience attendance at movie theaters in general was shrinking because of the saturation of television Mm. in the Japanese home. More Japanese homes were able to have television. There were these uh, TV shows like Ultraman and Ultra Q, which had monsters on them and kids could watch them for free on TV. And they didn't have to pay to go see the theaters. Theaters uh, were uh, closing down in Japan. Audience attendance across the board was slowing down. And so these monster pictures were expensive to produce, and the audiences were not there. A lot of people outside, taking everything out of the context outside of being in Japan, 
would say that, oh, the Godzilla series went downhill because less people wanted to see them, there was no interest in them. Mm. But it's the same exact curve as the loss of attendance of all Japanese movies during this period. So people were just not going to theaters like they used to. And all the theater, there were theater closures every year. More and more theaters were closing uh, because they just couldn't generate the same kind of business as the boom, the the post-war boom years. You know, the late 50s through like probably like the mid 60s were the high point. Mm. And then televisions, same thing as the United States, you know, where television kind of became king. Now, with uh, Destroy All Monsters, yeah, it was planned as the last film, and uh, they intended it to be the last film. Um, what I think of it, um, I think I think that it's one of my favorites. Really? Um, it is one of my favorites. Um, it just, everything kind of gels together. They're in that period I was talking about earlier where, you know, Everything has gotten slicker. Everybody knows their, you know, uh, knows their place. They, all the moves are there. It's very effortlessly made. Um, certainly, you know, they're reusing, you know, elements of like previous pictures, like the Mysterians and and uh, Monster Zero, uh, as an example, to within the plot of the film. Mm-hmm. But them just throwing this big house of monsters, you know, this virtual you know, House of Dracula, of, of the Godzilla pictures, um, it succeeds better because I, it, it moves along at a fast pace. The, I think the human character of, uh, of uh, Katsu Yamabe, the, the cat commander of the uh, uh, Moonlight SY-3, is really interesting mm-hmm. um, because he's unlike the, character, the lead characters in most of the previous Godzilla films, which were, or most of the Toho monster pictures, they were usually either blue-collar workers, or newspaper men. Mm-hmm. You know, you had, of course, the astronauts. They're not exactly in Monster Zero. Uh, you know, they're not exactly military guys. And then you have this guy in the, in the form of, you know, a, uh, who Akira Kubo played, uh, Captain Yamabe, who is hard as nails. Yeah. He's the first real, like, action-tough guy in a Godzilla movie. Uh, besides maybe the wisecracking, you know, uh, 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 bank robber in Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster. But, you know, he's a crook. Mm-hmm. So here you have this hero. You know, he's a military guy. He's the commander of the SY-3. Every 10-year-old boy wants to be that guy. Yeah. He's got a killer spaceship. He flies around all over the place. You know, he's pulling earrings off of women, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, slapping people around. He's shooting people in the head. You know, and uh, <laughs> bad guys, you know, and uh, alien, alien controlled people in the head and uh, all that fun stuff. And it, the movie is just like colorful. It's, you know, you could tell that everyone working on the film, you just get this feeling that it was a fun experience yeah. that they had making this picture. And it really kind of transcends. It was also one of those movies that I saw at an age in a movie theater, like at a matinee. And uh, where it made a really strong impression because I'm seeing this film on a giant screen in a really big movie theater with the booming sound, mm. and it made that that you know really strong impression. Another thing that was added to the mystique of that for me was that it rarely played on television yeah. when I was a child, and it, the only time to see it was like in a movie theater um, when it would come you know in some matinee or revival or something like that, and. You know, I was there. I was there for that movie. And uh, I was at a guest at uh, G-Fest, the Godzilla convention in the United States that takes place in Chicago every year. 
uh, and uh, last year they did the we were doing a panel on the anniversary yeah. of uh, Destroy All Monsters, and uh, we had about four, five, six people on the panel. All of them are people who loved the movie, but they all had different opinions about how much they loved it or what they really liked about it or what they ultimately thought about it. Mm-hmm. And some people are going, well, you know, it's a fun picture, but it's not my favorite Godzilla movie. You know, and I said, well, you know what? It's one of my favorite Godzilla films. While it might not be my most 100% number one favorite, it is the most perfect Godzilla film. Yeah, it flows. It flows. It color and flows and... Uh you know, a big sci-fi aspect of it. The, 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 these movies were big uh, by now. Mm-hmm. You know, the the, the, the concepts, uh, you know, um, could be big and no one would be surprised, I guess, uh, that the Godzilla movies did this. Uh, yes. I mean, no, no, they were rooted once, you could argue that, if you go back to 1954. Uh, right. But now, just wonderfully big, colorful, and uh, in the most sexy, sexy Toho scope you've ever seen, basically. Right. Oh, yeah. And I think a lot of people, you know, have these opinions on the film because they haven't seen them in a theater. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm not saying that, you know, I'm somebody special, but even as a child, when I saw Son of Godzilla, mm-hmm. you know, I really liked that picture. And again, it's an age and a time, and you see something, and you can see through the fact that it's pan and scanned, it's cropped. It's not the full widescreen. You're seeing it on a small television set. Yeah. And I would tell people for years, you know, because I had eventually, once it was able, once it was released on uh, home video in Japan, you know, you get a copy. It's widescreen and go, look, see, I told you this was a gorgeous picture. Yeah. And you try to tell people that, and they're still going, oh. And there was a Godzilla convention in Los Angeles, and people were going, oh, I'm not going to go see Son of Godzilla. And I go, well. Mr. Nakajima, who played Godzilla, and Mr. Arikawa, who did the special effects, they're both going to be there talking about the film before. Why? And you're at a Godzilla convention. Why don't you want to see the Godzilla movie? Yeah. <laughs> they're showing many Godzilla films, but why don't you come and see this one too? Because you're at this convention to celebrate being Godzilla fans. Yeah. And some and some people said, oh, I'm not going to bother. I never liked that movie, you know. And they're talking about seeing it on some ratty home video copy or taped off television or, or you know the pan and scan faded 16 millimeter it does hurt it, it does hurt it the is. movie immensely i can yes. dislike a movie in pan and scan and love it in widescreen whether or not it's then in its original language or not because it's it just does something it brings yeah, out the intent someone, obviously yeah and i told someone once i go look if you took people who deride these movies i said you know what if you take do you like The Seven Samurai? Yes. Do you think it's one of the world-class movies, you know, just a cl- world classic of, of cinema? Yes. I go, okay, what would you think of Seven Samurai, which is three and a half hours, if they cut it down to 90 minutes and had it dubbed by three people from the Bronx, New York? Yeah. Anyone, well, it probably wouldn't take it very seriously. I go, that's what happens to these movies. Hmm. So you need to see them in the original language, on the big screen, in a nice print. And, uh, you know, when they did show the Son of Godzilla, there were people gasping because they never saw it in widescreen before, and they never certainly saw it in a theater before. Mm-hmm. And afterwards, there was much discussion. You know, they, they, they had the, uh, the special effects director. He told people how he did everything, and people were like, <gasps> you know, and, you know, after they had seen the picture, yeah. he was describing how they did it, and people were applauding his answers, and... And afterwards, everybody's going, wow, you know, I never really liked that movie, but now I thought, oh, it's great. Mm. 
you, you bring up user. an uh, interesting uh, question about the dubbing. Are, are, are you mm-hmm. are you at all a fan of the Titra dubs, the professional dubs that were made for Godzilla, or do you think they helped uh, add fuel onto the fire of this uh, conception that uh, you know the bad dubbing and the bad special effects and uh, it looks bad and is bad? Uh, well, I think some of the earlier pictures were, you know, uh, badly dubbed, are, are just lazily dubbed. Mm. Um, you know, when you're growing up in, like, the 70s and, and you're seeing these things on television, you're not seeing them in the full context. You know, so I didn't see these in cro- chronological order growing up. Mm. You know, I don't think I saw the original, I didn't see the original Godzilla until about 1974. Right. There was the Raymond Burr version. I never saw it. Yeah. I'd seen the other Godzilla pictures. And when I first saw Godzilla King of the Monsters, I hated it because he dies at the end. Yeah. You know, I'm a kid. You know, I'm going, you can't kill Godzilla. He's the strongest monster of all time, yeah. you know. <laughs> and they kill him at the end. I go, what kind of movie is this, you know. <laughs> and then, you know, a few years later, you know, I'm like 17, 18 years old, and I learned to appreciate the film, and then it becomes like my favorite, you know. Uh, and uh, But anyway, so <laughs> the dubbing... Um, and, and at the time when we were watching these films, that was one of the things that people would make fun of these movies to us as, as kids who who like these films or young adults who like these movies. Oh, you like those movies with the bad dubbing and the matches, the lips don't match the voices, and you know, and you would just sit there and go, ah, I can't argue with these people because they're just attacking it from the wrong angle. It has nothing yeah. to do with the original picture, but. So over the years, you know, I championed, as many other fans did, I'm not saying I'm the only person who championed, I was telling people, please watch the Japanese versions. If we can get subtitles on these things, mm. you should just get away from the dubbing, because too many people would just get distracted by the dubbing, yeah. no matter what kind of dubbing it was. And they would just start laughing, because it was just dubbed. Even if the dubbing was perfect, they would yeah. still laugh, because it was an automatic Pavlovian response, almost, with audiences at that time. Um, and, uh, so I really pushed for people to see uncut widescreen Japanese prints, but I'm not a snob at the same time, because after a while, you know, finally these being around and available to everybody, then I started feeling kind of homesick and nostalgic for the old dubs, especially the ones that were done by Titra, Mm. which I felt were fantastic. Even when I was a kid, I felt they were fantastic because... One of the ways that we can only, in my generation of American fans, not only just of these Godzilla films, but just any kind of monster pictures or these types of uh, you know, horror pictures, um, the only way we could capture these movies, because there were no VCRs in the early 70s, wow. Wow. you know, tape recording the audio tracks, putting the microphone up to the speaker of your television and trying to make everybody in your house be quiet. <laughs> and then we would play these things over and over and over and then like I think for many years I could quote Godzilla versus the thing I could quote the all the dialogue from beginning to end because for a <laughs> time that was the only thing I had that was of the actual film that the yeah. soundtrack with the dubbed voices and all that but no Titra you know uh, not and not even in retrospect Titra always did a great job I always appreciated and I tried to tell people the difference between dubbing yeah. you know and nobody was taking this teenager seriously when I'm trying to talk mm-hmm. to adults you know especially adult film snobs mm-hmm. I go you know there's a difference you know the Titra people are the same people that dubbed 
you know, what's, what's one of your favorite foreign films? You know, and they go, oh, well, you know, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. They dubbed it. It's the same people. <laughs> yeah. And it's the same voice actors. All the Sergio Leone movies were <laughs> dubbed, you know, by Titra. Oh, it, it's um, it's also an example of Destroy All Monsters where they I haven't heard the Titra dub, but but I've heard the Toho dub on the Australian DVD, uh, oh, yeah. the international dub, and that's just flat out sucks. It's well, uh, you know, it, it, it's a quickly yeah. done bad syncing and no no fit whatsoever, and I just even for a goofy movie like that because it is goofy and it's fun and it's great because of it. But mm, I, I just uh, I, I barely could make it through the whole thing, and I never want to listen to the international dub again. Right? Yeah, it's it's terrible. Um, the dialogue actually doesn't make any sense, yeah. and uh, there there's certain lines that you know are just are comp- almost like non sequiturs. Yeah. You don't you don't know what they're talking about, and and it does the sentence doesn't make any sense. It was like somebody. You know, did a babblefish translation. You know, they did. They got some kind of a translation script, and nobody decided to rewrite it. You know, they got a raw translation and just went with it. You know, made it up on the spot because they were squeezing that in between a couple of other things. Because that same group of dubbers, you know, uh, and I believe those are the people that worked out of uh, Frontier. Uh, front, what was it called? Uh, I think it was Frontier Enterprises. I um, have it I think that was his company. Here. It was William Ross. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Eric, American expat. I think that was his company that may have dubbed, because the, Toho also farmed stuff out to Hong Kong. You know, you're familiar with those ones, like some of the 70s ones. Yeah. Uh, weren't redubbed by AIP, and those are the same kung fu voices. Yeah. A lot of the same, some, same actors. And, you know, we, we can live with those because, you know, especially if you grew up with dubbed kung fu pictures, you know, they have that kind of like familiar quality to them, so you don't mind them as much as. It is very rare that you have a kung fu movie that has re- received the titra attention. Uh, yeah. Because they they were ninety nine percent of the time the dubs made in Hong Kong. But there's a great example is a Jimmy Wang Yu movie called The Desperate Chase. Uh, yes. That was released as I think it was Blood of the Dragon or something like that in America, and the mm-hmm. dub for yeah. that, the American dub, aside from the fact that they added a score um, at times in the film by a band I can't name now, that dub is fantastic. Mm-hmm. And I, it's, uh, yeah. it's the movie is a quite quite a serious movie, it's action drama, and it does well because the movie is done well, but the dub adds some wonderful nuances to it. It's well performed. Right, and that and that was that was kind of rare that that happened occasionally. Yeah. And once the smaller companies started, <clears throat> you know, cashing in on the kung fu craze, you know, a lot of the companies, as you well know, I don't have to tell you this, <laughs> you know, they had these these films, these companies were offering. They're already dubbed in English, so they said, "Why bother redubbing them? Yeah. We don't care if it's it doesn't make any sense. It's in English." Yeah. You know, so um, they didn't really care. But some of these other companies, like when Warner Brothers or an American major American studio would pick up some of these pictures. They would redub them, and like you said, they did them, you know, very well. Um, you know, and it's just a shame that uh, you know dubbing had such a stigma to it, you know. And uh, but at the same time, it's like you know now it's harder to preserve those old dubs in the United States now because uh, people can't locate the negatives. They're they're somewhere, yeah. you know. 
you have to do digging, but Toho doesn't want anyone to use them because the people who worked on them, some of them became big actors. Like, you know, one of the Devers on the AIP uh, version of Destroy All Monsters is Hal Linden, yeah. who was a stage actor and a television actor and, uh, in the United States. Of, he became sort of very big in the 70s. Um, and, you know, they're afraid that these people are going to come back and say, hey, I want my residuals for this. Mm. If they allow someone to use that dub on, you know, uh, a DVD release in the United States or elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's, it's unfortunate that we're losing those, some of those great classic dubs. And finally, friend of the show and author of Fight Choreography, The Art of Nonverbal Dialogue, John Kreng uh, took some time out to discuss Destroy All Monsters. I, I also did like uh, Destroy All Monsters. I mean, that was where everybody was in the movie, you know? Right. Yeah. It's uh, it was supposed to be the last uh, Toho's last, so they they were they got them all into one and tried to make the, the ultimate one, and and unfortunately it was very successful, and a lot of people think that the series uh, went downhill. Uh, the closer you got to the 70s, basically, so some argue that they they should have stopped at that one, but uh, what are you gonna do when commercial commercial interests uh, are what they are? True. Too, and I think they started getting the budgets got a little bit bigger and they got more elaborate with the costumes and and I feel the action was not you know like I said before the action was was not as clever you know because they had a little bit more money with the costumes and they said oh the the costume is much more expensive we can't you know take a risk and destroy it and the costume and stuff like that so it kind of I think it was kind of a you know yeah their own demise definitely. Mm. And, and and also in that movie, Destroy All Monsters, I mean, I I that don't know, myself don't know too much about, you know, the intricacies behind that kind of action directing. But when you have seven or eight on screen at one time involved in that fight versus King Ghidorah, mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's uh, I, I wouldn't know where to start in terms of, you know, trying to accomplish that, trying to put that together, because it's not like they do quick cuts. To cover up the fact that these are just uh, dolls or people not moving at all, uh, they're, right. they're, they're fighting. It's a it, the, the whole scene is set up like this uh, big uh, big wrestling match. They even have sports commentators or news commentators on site and talking about uh, <laughs> you know, and uh, it's it's just incredibly detailed. You know, it's not yeah. two it's not two monsters anymore. It's seven or eight, and uh, and, the, and the technique behind that is just uh, I wouldn't know where to start. Uh, well, you know, you could tell they had a lot of pre-planning. Yeah. You could, I mean, that's that's the key thing about any great fight scene. I mean, look what Yong Ping did with The Matrix. Hmm. I think that really changed how America, America and the West saw fight scenes. Hmm. You know, it kind of woke everybody up, and then everybody started doing wires and, and stuff like that, where the real message should have been, look, if you want a great fight scene... You have to pre-plan. Mm. You cannot just say, "Well, only just toss a couple, you know, kung fu guys in there and fight and just film it." Mm. it doesn't work that way. Unfortunately, a lot of directors, filmmakers, and, and DPs they think that way, and that's mm. not true. They don't understand what is involved in putting together a great fight scene. You know, you have to have the right inserts. You got to know when to, you know, uh, when to when to move the camera, when to cross the line. 
you know, a lot of a lot of filmmakers are are anal about crossing the line um, because they don't think it's right. Some do feel it's right, some don't. But the thing is, you know, if you establish the room, you can cross the line. But you know, a lot of people have different, you know, you know, theories about that. But mm. you gotta, I mean, the thing is, you gotta shoot the right angles, and especially if it's with any. Yeah, like you know, like we we're talking about with with uh, with destroy all monsters. When you have seven seven creatures that have different abilities, you know, you gotta you gotta pre-plan. You can't just go, well, why don't we just have them do something and we'll just film it? It's just like, you know, why don't you just go to a party and film people talking and make a movie out of it? Mm-hmm. You can't do that. You gotta have a beginning, middle, and end, and that takes planning. And and, you know, and, and, and and that was what they had that kind of filmmaking family they, up until that yeah. movie anyway they, they it seemed like they were left alone I mean we know what we're doing give us the time to figure out uh, what to do and we'll give you the result that you expect I mean we, we <laughs> it was that close family you know filmmaker producer special effects director if you will if you want to keep it simple it was that uh, trio and uh, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, even in earlier films, when you saw King Ghidra for the first time, and you hear about what it took to maneuver the three heads, uh, that wire work behind us just mind-boggling and uh, yeah. and uh, intricate and complex. And I and I mean, we're seeing the finished takes on film. I wouldn't know. I wouldn't imagine how what you know they were probably perfectionists to some degree you know to get them to move like they wanted and uh, to get the wire work to work they wanted i mean it takes time and takes and wow yeah so that's it for part one of japan on fire special on kaiju look out for part two coming soon and also further interviews with the special guests involved so thank you for supporting japan on fire and podcast on fire and see you next time Oh,